Good morning. Would you all mind standing for the reading of the scripture this morning? And we are in John 7, verses 1 through 43. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of the tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore Jesus told them, My time is not yet here. For you any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I am not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he, after he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people, but no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does, does so to gain personal glory, but he who speaks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law, yet no one, no one of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you were all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly and they're not saying a word, a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority. But he who sent me is true. You do know him. Or you do not know him, but I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no man laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Still many in the crowd believed him. They said, When the Messiah comes, he will perform... Will he perform more signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, 
Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living waters will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his word, some of the people said, Surely this man is a prophet. Others said, He is the Messiah. Still others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. This is the word of God. Amen. Thank you, love. Stay standing if you would, and we're going to pray and then get to work here. Father, it is so good to be together in your house with your people, and your people are your house. We no longer trust that buildings made with men's hands are the house of God, but you dwell within us as temples of the Holy Spirit. And now as we have gathered as the building of God on the foundation of Jesus Christ, fit together perfectly this house called the church, I pray that we would be built up by Holy Scripture, built up by the life and truth in what Jesus says and does. So now we ask as we enter into John chapter 7 that you would sharpen our minds, ready our spirits, and help us to be ready to hear what the Spirit would say to the church today. Speak now to this collective gathering of brothers and sisters. For those who feel very far from you and those who are close, God, we all need a word from you. And I pray now that you would speak to us through the scriptures in Jesus' name we said together, amen, amen, amen. You can grab a seat. And we are in John chapter 7 in our John series as my lovely wife read that very lengthy piece of text. Um, This chapter, chapter 7, touches on one of the great mysteries of life. And I would say one of the great mysteries of life is why people believe what they believe about God uh, and how they come to those conclusions. And although it's a very involved discussion, they're really, when we talk about what people believe about God, when we talk about God, um, there are three major categories that most belief systems can fall within. Um, not to oversimplify, but I think these are the three main categories. The first is uh, naturalism. That is the belief that nothing exists other than the physical universe. And there are a growing number of people that would fall into there is no God, we are alone in the universe, and there is nothing else but the universe. Then there's uh, the camp that we would predominantly fall in, uh, which is called theism. That is, God is the source of all that exists, but is distinctly different from his creation. And uh, there's a whole lot within theism to talk about as well. And then there is the third view I would call, or is called pantheism. And everything that this view holds that everything that exists is God. God is the universe, and the universe is God. So, really, when we talk about what people believe, uh, these are the three main categories that we would fall into predominantly. Um, and it's important this discussion, uh, as pastor and theologian A.W. Tozer from Last Generation wrote in the first line of his great book, The Pursuit of God, this statement. What comes into our minds when we think about God 
is the most important thing about us. So regardless of your worldview, um, whether you hold a naturalist worldview, a theistic worldview, or a pantheist worldview, we're all asking the same questions. Who is God and what is he like? And so chapter 7 in this text of John, um, we find that everyone has an opinion about Jesus. I don't know if you picked up on that in the reading, but everyone is essentially saying, this is who Jesus is. And as many views as there are about God, there were views even in a very religious, theistic, monotheistic society there in Israel. Everyone had an opinion on who Jesus is. Verse 1, note, it says the Jewish leaders wanted to kill him. So obviously their view of Jesus was pretty low if they want to have him killed. Uh, Verse 5, his own brothers did not even believe in him. Verse 12, some said, He's a good man. So there was one view. Others said, no, he deceives the people. He's a cult leader. He's a liar. He's deceptive. He's a shady car salesman. He's a TV evangelist. Verse 20, the crowd said, even worse, he's demon-possessed. You're demon-possessed, Jesus. Verse 40 and 41, some said, this man is the prophet. And if you're familiar with this term, the prophet, it comes from Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Moses said that there was coming one, a prophet who would be like him, who would be greater than him. Some were saying, no, he's the fulfillment of what Moses said was coming. Deuteronomy 18, verse 41. Others said, no, he's the Messiah. And verse 43, I think, is the clincher. Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. There is not a figure in all of human history that has caused more division than Jesus Christ. Everyone's got an opinion on God and Jesus. But if you hold a biblical view of Jesus the way we do, um, the way I do, um, then there are things about Jesus that the Scriptures put forth that are profound and worthy of noting. The Scriptures say a lot about Jesus, so we no longer need to wonder about Jesus, we just go to the scriptures and listen to the voice of scripture in various places. We're told in scripture that Jesus is the seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, called the Proto-Evangelium, which is the first mention of the gospel. The mention that the one who's coming will crush the serpent's head. But also we're told he's our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, the one who is coming would fulfill these four types. He would be a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6. But we're also told by the same prophet Isaiah, he's the one who bears our griefs and carries our sorrows, Isaiah 53, verse 4. Then the gospel writer John says that Jesus was from the beginning, he is with God and he is God. John chapter 1, verse 1. Later, John tells us that Jesus is the only way to the Father. John 14, verse 6. Acts 4, verse 11 and 12. Peter declares he's the cornerstone of life and the only way for salvation. Paul writes, 1 Timothy 2, 5. He is the mediator between God and man. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 says, He's the embodiment of the divine. In Him, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. 
The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is our sympathetic high priest, Hebrews 4.15, that he is our great intercessor, Hebrews 7.25, that he is the, profound, the founder and perfecter of our faith, now seated at the right hand of the throne of God, Hebrews 12, verse 2, that he is the beginning and the end of all things, the Alpha and Omega, Revelation 1.8, that he is the one who has imprinted on his robe and written on his thigh the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Revelation chapter 19, verse 16. Let the church say, Amen. Amen. The Bible says a lot of powerful things about the nature of who Jesus is. And when you know and believe certain things about Jesus, it's hard to understand why some people do not believe as you do. But in chapter 7, this crowd of Jewish men and women do not believe in Jesus. And uh, I've noted three things that I would say contribute to what I'm calling unbelievable unbelief from this chapter. So what is it that drives unbelief? How do people come to a place where they don't believe in Jesus uh, and who he is? Well, I would present these three things to you. Number one, there's unbelief due to over-familiarity. Unbelief due to over-familiarity. Number two, unbelief due to unbending pride. Unbelief due to unbending pride. Third and finally, unbelief due to unmet expectations. And that's what we're going to really talk about this morning. And then at the end, we'll, we'll make the grand uh, climax in talking about Jesus' invitation to come to him in all of our unbelief. So Jesus' brothers, though, as the story begins here in John chapter 7, are prodding him to go up to the festival. It was the time of the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, the, the Feast of Tabernacles was one of the seven major feasts in Israel. And it was commemorating the 40 years in the wilderness that Israel wandered and God saw them through. And so it was that very important time in Jewish uh, culture and history for Jews to go up to Jerusalem and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. But Jesus was aware that he, they had a hit out on him. They wanted to kill him. So this is mafia-style religion. They were going to see Jesus killed. And, and repeatedly, actually, throughout the text, you might notice that Jesus would say a phrase like, my time has not yet come. Because if you don't know this, Jesus was on a prophetic timetable. God had the beginning and ending of his days calculated to the moment. And so his brothers, though, are prodding him and saying, hey, listen, you need to go up to this feast and do your superpowers, prove to the world who you are. No one who wants to be a public figure does all their, their, their magic powers, their, their, their Messiah powers in private. Go show everybody who you are. But we're told in verse 5 it was driven by unbelief. For verse 5 says that the brothers of Jesus did not even believe in him. And so that brings up our first point, And that simply is unbelief driven by or due to over-familiarity. So from the best we can tell from the New Testament, Jesus had brothers and sisters. Um, we know that he had sisters, and we actually know that he probably likely had four brothers. And that's from Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. It says, um, they were saying about Jesus, isn't this the carpenter's son? That would be his stepfather, Joseph. Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James? Joseph, Simon, and Judas. So these were Jesus' brothers. And at this time, these brothers 
did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah that he was claiming to be. And part of the reason is that they were just over familiar with him. They grew up with him, so it's kind of hard to take that our oldest brother is God. So until he resurrected, it's likely that none of Jesus' brothers actually believed in him. There is an over-familiarity, or as the statement goes, a familiarity that breeds contempt. And they, Jesus was so close that they couldn't see him. And I just want to speak to many of us here who are uh, those who grew up with Jesus. So some of you came to Jesus later in life. Some of us were raised in homes that took us to church that preached Jesus, that we were familiar with the Bible. And, and for some of us church brats, Jesus has become so familiar that we can't even see him. And a lot of times when you've been in church for a long time, you think you know everything about the Bible because you saw it on a flanograph from your Sunday school teacher. And so you give Christianity sort of that, yeah, 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 I already know all the answers to that. I won Bible trivia at my Sunday school three years running. And, and so for, I mean, it is, don't get me wrong, it is a wonderful thing to grow up with Jesus. I can't think of a better way to raise your children and to be raised yourself. You avoid so many of the vices and so many of the, the trip-ups and the slip-ups that people who don't have Jesus as their true north can often get tangled in. So I don't, I don't regret, I, I don't think anyone should regret having grown up with Jesus in his church. It's a wonderful thing, amen? Come on, church brats, amen, right? Don't, 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 don't get upset because you your daddy raised you in church. Thank God for that. There are things you missed out on, and those of you who didn't get raised in the church can say, amen, you church brats. You've been in here so long, you don't appreciate what you got. But Jesus is good. But sometimes what the, the, the thing that happens with, with going to church your whole life is the overfamiliarity is because sometimes you got more church than you got Jesus. And, and, and Emmaus, is, we're trying to Jesus people. We're not trying to church you. Like, I literally don't care if you don't know anything about church as American church, policy and politicking and church as we know it, the classic kind of the, the box that we call church. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about in church, we encounter Jesus and church should be a place, the gathering of saints, you and I in a theater that we rent out. This isn't a building we own. The church is you, it's me, it's us, it's we learning about Jesus. But when Jesus becomes over-familiar, you can, like the brothers, we grew up with him. We know he has B.O. We know he passes gas. We know he burps at the table sometimes. He's human being, 100% man and 100% God. And it was probably the manness, the humanness of Jesus that made his brothers say, yeah, we don't really know if he is who he says he is. And some of you guys think passing gas is a sin. I would say, no, it's not. So Jesus never sinned, but he may have passed gas. Um, that's fine. We can talk about that in church. Um, but, you know, for, for a lot of us who have been around for a while, we know all the, the, the right answers, so we think. I would challenge you to revisit the person of Jesus, 
to not assume that you know him as well as you may think you do. I read a book uh, several years ago. It was written by um, Philip Yancey in the mid-90s, a book uh, called The Jesus I Never Knew. And it was his personal journey to rediscovering Jesus after having grown up and being churched more than Jesus. And this is what he writes about that journey of rediscovering Jesus. The Jesus I got to know in writing this book is very different from the Jesus I learned about in Sunday school. In some ways, he is more comforting, and in some ways, more terrifying. I like that. If you struggle with, honestly, even for those of you who didn't get raised in church, who've just been around church for for too long, some of you are getting old, stale, and crusty about Jesus. You don't really, you just kind of, you know what you think you know, and you're over-familiar. I would challenge you to go on a journey of rediscovery to go find the real, the raw, and the true Jesus, and he will shock you and surprise you. He's going to be more loving than you ever imagined, and he's going to be more confrontational than perhaps you thought. If you've tamed him, as C.S. Lewis said, my God is a lion. He cannot be tamed. As Tumnus asked, is he good? Well, he's a lion. He's good, but he's a lion. He'll rip you to shreds, but he's a good kind of lion. He wouldn't rip you to shreds for no reason, but he could if he should. He's Jesus. He's God. He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And so revisiting Jesus is to find great comfort and to find great discomfort. If you're not uncomfortable being a follower of Jesus, you ain't doing it right. If you are not deeply comforted being a follower of Jesus, you ain't doing it right. You should be deeply comforted and uncomfortable to the max at the same time. That is the tension of following Jesus. He does not make it easy, but it's wonderful, amen? So the brothers had fallen into this category, though, where Jesus was so close, they really could not see him. But the second reason that I want to bring up from the chapter for this unbelievable unbelief is number two, unbelief due to unbending pride. So in response to Jesus being prodded by his brothers to go to Jerusalem and show off his superpowers, um, to show the world who he was. Look at Jesus' response to this, and I think it's telling. Jesus said, verse 6, My time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you. Now notice this. But it hates me because. Okay, so let's just stop right there for just a moment. Let's be clear. There are people who are indifferent towards Jesus, but Jesus would say about the world in his classification, they hate me. They don't hate you, those who follow me, but they hate me. Later, Jesus will say, they are going to hate you because you love me. And Jesus is clear, they hate me because. Why does the world, why do people hate Jesus? If he's preached correctly, there will be people who hate him. If you preach him incorrectly, you can get everybody to think, oh, that's the guru of the world that lets everybody get a pass. No, no, he's the one who said, the way is narrow. The gate is straight. There are few who find that way. The the way to destruction is a broad way, and many will go down that path. Jesus says things that will bother you and rattle you to your core. And Jesus says, the world hates me because, verse 7, 
I testify that its works are evil. People who are not humble do, want, do not like to be told they are wrong. But Jesus didn't just say you're wrong. He says you're evil. Not very many of us like to be told something like, hey, listen, um, in love, you're evil. You need to turn away from the way that you're living because it's evil. Like we, wouldn't even, we, we don't even like to use the word sin in church a lot of times. No, that's too harsh. Well, Jesus doesn't even just say sin. He says evil. What's the last time someone called you evil? Has anyone ever called you evil? Jesus testified to the world, they're evil. And they hate him for it. Because proud, rebellious people do not want authority in their lives. And if you don't want authority in your lives, you're going to struggle with Christianity. Christianity isn't all about authority, but Jesus is the one whom we must fear and submit our lives to. When you declare Romans 10, 9, the Bible says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, what? That Jesus is Lord. Lord, kuyos. Just translate, just, just replace that word with master. You can't say Jesus is master unless he's master. He's in charge. You, you surrender yourself to him. So Jesus says, the world hates me. Because I declare over it something it doesn't want to hear, that it's wrong, sinful, and evil. In the most loving and confrontational way, Jesus has to say what needs to be said, and the world hated him for that. I mean, even some of the nicest hippies I know, they get uncharacteristically angry when they find out or you bring up a topic about some of the things that Christianity says is, stands in the classification of evil. They'll get so mad, uncharacteristically so, because they don't want to be told this is right, this is wrong, and that's evil. But brothers and sisters, there is good and evil in this world. There is right and wrong in this world. There are some things that are not pleasing to God, and it doesn't bring anybody great pleasure to say those things, but it is better that those things be said than we leave them unsaid. I don't like to be told I'm wrong. I get told by some of y'all sometimes uh, in the various ways that I'm wrong, and I don't enjoy that. But sometimes I need it. Sometimes I need people to say, hey, bro, like, I, th I think you're wrong here. But who likes that? I mean, do you like being told, I think you're wrong? I don't like that. The reason that I receive from Jesus the times when he rebukes me is because I've chosen the fear of the Lord. I don't like it any more than anybody else to be told I'm wrong, evil, or sinful. But those things are true about me, and if Jesus has to say them, he's doing it because he's in jealous love for me, not because he's trying to make me feel like a worm. But for many, many people, their hatred towards Christianity or church or religion is really based out of either they misunderstand what the message of, message of Christianity is, or they just don't like being told anything. And I'm afraid we're in a generation of people, because they have the internet, think they know everything. We're all experts. We all know everything. And we don't want any authority, because authority, well, we, we don't like that. We don't want anyone telling us what to do. But to follow the way of Jesus is to have to come under His authority. Amen? You guys are quiet during that point. Chewie. Can't say amen. Say ouch. <laughs> Finally, 
This unbelievable unbelief, we see not only was it due to overfamiliarity, unbending pride, but thirdly, unbelief due to unmet expectations. Now, this one that probably hits me the hardest of them all. Um, there were several issues that people had with Jesus in the text. Um, in verses 21 to 24, the religious leaders note they were still after Jesus. They had the hit out on him because of the healing of the, the, the invalid man in, back in chapter 5. So Jesus, they're trying to kill him because they said he violated Sabbath. People got issues with Jesus because their expectation was you don't do anything on the Sabbath and you did something on the Sabbath, therefore we got issues with you, Jesus. But there were others in the crowd whose issues with Jesus were more nuanced. Um, they didn't see that Jesus was living up to their expectations of what a Messiah should be. So, so they had built in their own brain, this is what a Messiah should be. And when Jesus didn't do what they thought Messiah should do, they said, he can't be, the, he can't be who he says he is. Because they knew where he lived. They were like, we know where you grew up. The Messiah, when he comes, is supposed to appear out of nowhere. But we know that you're from Nazareth. We, we know, we have a superficial knowledge of where you're from. And so they said, Messiah is going to come in a certain way, and you don't meet those expectations. They also, notice um, verse 31, they judged Jesus because they assumed the crowd, they assumed, excuse me, Messiah would do even more signs than Jesus had done. Like, you haven't done enough miracles to prove yourself. And I'm thinking, who has done more than Jesus? How many dead people he raised and diseases he healed and demons he cast out and miracles he did and, and, and all of these things. And they said, it's not good enough. Part of it is because Jesus wasn't a showboater. He would not have had a television program with cameras rolling to show his miracles on national television. He did it in people's homes. He raised the dead at a funeral. He went where people were and touched them, and he wasn't trying to showboat the thing. He did some things that were signs of Messiah, though. He healed a leprous man one time, and he said, go show yourself to the priests, because the priest should know that a leper has never been healed in Israel. When they see the first leper healed in Israel, they will know the prophecy of Isaiah that when the Messiah comes, the lepers will be healed, the dead will be raised. Jesus did all the Messiah stuff. But they said, you're not doing enough to prove yourself to be the Messiah that you're supposed to be. The problem with judging God's performance and then deciding whether or not he's worthy of being God is that all of a sudden... We, who don't have enough information, become the judge and jury of God. And we decide if He's met our expectations. And you know, a lot of people get mad at God. They decide He's not God or they get mad at Him because they have decided, if I were God, I would not allow that to happen. You allowed that to happen, it seems, God. Therefore, I don't believe in you. I don't trust you. You're not good. Or, God, if I were in your position, this is how I would run the universe. And when God doesn't behave the way that we think we ought, He ought to behave, like these, they, we say, oh, he, he can't be Messiah. He's not doing everything we expected Him to do. One Greek philosopher put it this way, the problem with most people is that they imagine God to be pretty much like themselves. He would... You, you may not always love yourself, but you really do love yourself, especially for those of us who think that God ought to behave like we would. As if 
You have all the answers. As if I'm the one who knows how the universe should be run. And, you know, for the most part, I kind of let God do his thing. But when my life doesn't go the way I thought my life should go, when someone dies that I didn't think they should have died, that I love and I've lost, when I experience a breakup or finances or uh, expectations or dreams and hopes that I've had, then when life doesn't play out like the equation, you know, I met a lot of good Christian young men and women who did everything in the equation. They thought this plus this equals a blessed life. And when Christianity didn't work out like the equation, they thought either God isn't good or he isn't real, but he owes me. I did it right. I, I waited till I got married to have sex. I, I, I didn't drink and chew and go with girls that do. I obeyed the, the rules. I did all the right stuff. I, I was the, the, the church kid. I, I was moral. I was this. And when my life doesn't, so, so if I do this and this, I should always have blessing every time. And when that doesn't happen, our unmet expectations often allow us to act like this crowd who decides he can't be Messiah because we've decided that Messiah is like this and he doesn't fit the bill. They could not see him because of unmet expectations. And that is, my friends, a form of idolatry. I mean, I don't think many of you, and I don't think... Jesse Dewey comes down here uh, to the art center and like makes idols down in the pottery, the little pottery area here at the art center. He does make cups and stuff. I don't think you're not bowing to those things, are you? Offering stuff? Okay, that's good. Um, if so, let's talk afterwards. Um, but you know, idolatry in, in our, our, our sphere is that in the workshop of our mind, we've created an image of God. And so we think this is what God is like. And when he doesn't live up to the image we've created, the idol that we bow down to, then we don't have our expectations met. And so people walk away from God. That's the unbelievable unbelief we see in the chapter. But the powerful conclusion comes at this moment. Look down at verse 37. And this is where I want to drive this home and, and really end this morning. On the last day, the greatest day of the festival, with all this going on, all these people telling Jesus all these things about who he is, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, he like cried out the feast, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. This is a powerful moment. Not for just the words that Jesus said, but for the moment on which these words were spoken. It was the eighth day, the final day of the Jewish festival of tabernacles. The tradition for the Jewish festival of tabernacles was that the Jews would gather in Jerusalem and they would all sleep outdoors in little lean-tos that they built out of sticks. And for seven days, they would be remembering how God took care of them through the wilderness when there was so little provision. For seven days, they would live in these lean-tos. It was like a family camping trip. It was pretty cool. During the seven days of this festival of the Feast of Tabernacles, the priests would go down to the Pool of Siloam with a golden pitcher, fill up the pitcher, the Pool of Siloam, and bring it to the temple mount, into the temple, and pour it out 
on the altar as a representation of the way that God miraculously provided water in the wilderness for Israel during those 40 years, providing water through rocks, a very unlikely source. And for seven days, a priest would go down to the pool of Siloam, would come up with that golden pitcher full of water and pour it out on the altar, and the people would stand around and commemorate what God had done in sustaining them for those 40 years in the wilderness. But on the eighth day, the final day of the feast... The priests would go through that same exact motion, but they would come up with an empty vessel and no water would be in it. And on the eighth day, it was to represent God is no longer working that way. He has brought you into a land that flows with water, with milk, with honey. So now the eighth day was a representation of being brought from the wilderness into the promised land. So Jesus stands up on the day when no water was going to be poured out. And he says... Okay, I could have said it in one of the seven days where water was all over the altar, but I'm going to tell it to you on the day where there is no water. I am the source. Jesus says, so no water in the vessel. Anyone who is thirsty can come to me and drink because you're not going to get it from the priest. He doesn't have anything in his water pot today. You're not going to get it at the temple. It's no longer. Jesus is essentially saying, if you would, I am the rock from which the water flowed. Paul would later confirm that. Jesus is the rock from whom water flowed. Jesus would be essentially saying, I am the one who takes you into the promised land. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of his innermost will flow rivers of living water. This he spoke in metaphor of the Holy Spirit flowing through the life of someone who was formerly thirsty has come to Christ to drink, and now they're not only refreshed, but they have become a source of refreshment for others. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about as that last empty pitcher is being poured out, I'm the one who can make you not only satisfied in your thirst, but help you be a satisfaction for other people. But do you see what Jesus is doing He's doing it at a very pivotal time with all of the unbelief around him. People saying he's a demon. There's a hit out on his life. Uh, some people think he's a great man. Some say he didn't live up to the Messiah expectations. He's deceiving the people. And Jesus is dealing with all the public opinions and all this unbelief. But Jesus isn't rattled by any of it. So sure of who he was and what he had been called to do he didn't let what other people said threaten his identity. Everyone is not going to believe in you. Everyone did not believe in Jesus. Everyone is not going to like you. Jesus had a lot of people who didn't like him. He said, the world hates me. But as that great philosopher said, the hater's going to hate. But Jesus doesn't get rattled by the hate by the doubt and the skepticism, he simply says, I'm here for those who are thirsty for me. The assumption that everybody is bitter and angry and hard-hearted towards Jesus will make you feel rejected and cynical. But I would say we should rather go into the world as Jesus did and just assume everyone is thirsty for God. Because I deeply believe that so many people are thirsty for God. They just don't know it. They are running to something else to satisfy what only Jesus can. They're, they're, they'll, they'll chase sex, they'll chase power, prestige, 
Uh, they'll, they'll chase all kinds of possessions to fill that space, to, to take that drink. They'll come to, to waters that cannot satisfy. And, and the prophet Jeremiah rebuked a nation who had come to cisterns to find water and not come to God. And he said, but they are cisterns that can hold no water. Jesus says, in the spite of all the unbelief, he just ignores that and says, I'm here for those who thirst for me. I would just say, Go through life assuming that people are thirsty for God so it no longer becomes you trying to convince people. It's just, I am aware that there are so many people thirsty for God. Just like Jesus did all this negativity and accusations and you're demon-possessed and we don't believe you are who you say you are and we want to kill you. Jesus just stands there and says, hey, listen, people are still thirsty for me. I just go into the world believing people are still thirsty for God. That, that we have not passed the point where everyone has been reached for Jesus. Amen? So go out assuming that people want the Lord. But before you can do that, you have to confront your own inner thirst. Are you thirsty for God? The Bible says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. Have you come to Jesus to receive the living water that he's talking about, because before you can go be a resource of living water, you must come to Jesus for living water yourself. You know Jesus isn't talking about literal water here, right? This is a metaphor for Jesus' life through the Holy Spirit being received by you and coming out of you. I don't know how many of you would describe your life like a river of the Holy Spirit coming out of your life, but Jesus said, when thirsty people come to drink from me, they become a source, but like a torrent source, not just a small trickle. You become a real resource of life, of the Holy Spirit that comes through you. But before I dare invite you to come and drink, I must come to drink myself, because I don't believe people that aren't drinking what they're offering me to drink. I, I, don't, I don't trust a, a skinny cook. If you ain't eating what you're cooking, then I don't want to eat what you're cooking either. And in that way, before I tell others, I must myself have come and enjoyed the Holy Spirit. Is my life dry and empty? I mean, if, if I tell you, come to Jesus for joy, but I'm not joyful, then I'm not a very helpful source. Jesus has created us in such a way that he would so overflow through us that our life would then become a source of what we preach. Better to be a source of what you preach than just a voice that has no depth behind it. I mean, you can tell when someone is drinking from the fountain of living water and when they're not. And that's why it's chastening for me to even share this with you because I'm aware of my own spiritual need myself to take a drink from Jesus of the water so that I can become a source that others might drink and enjoy. But if you're not living from a place of spiritual abundance, then the first order of business before you go into the world and assume that everyone's thirsty for God is that you yourself would be fill, filled yourself, that you would come to the source of living water. The Bible says that we're not to be drunk with wine wherein is excess. Got that? Ephesians 5.18. But, and I like that, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Greek word is a constant imperative. It's an imperative. It's the idea of, of be being filled. Not just one and done. Like, be a person who's being filled. 
that has Jesus pouring into you and it's coming out of you. You're just this funnel of life. But Jesus is the one who is the source of all life. And so as we come to Jesus this morning, I just want us to ask ourselves the question and be able to admit to ourselves where we are in a place of spiritual poverty. Where we are at a place where if Jesus was literally physically here before us and would ask the question, is anyone thirsty for me? There would be a group of men and women that would say, yes, I'm thirsty for God. And I, and I know that I am not right now living in abundance. I know I'm right not, not right now living in, a, in, in joy. I'm not living in, in an overflow of the Holy Spirit in my life. You have to be able to admit that to yourself and to God. And there's no better place to do that when we're all getting together and we're saying we have faith that God wants to do things when we gather that are beyond your expectations. I don't know if you had any expectations coming to church. If you didn't, repent of that. You should come to church with expectations. In the Old Testament, when they built the tabernacle, the priests did everything they could, but the people had to bring the oil. If the people didn't bring the oil, there would be no light in the tabernacle, no church. You don't bring the oil, we ain't having no church. Don't expect me to bring the oil, it's your job bring the oil. Come with expectation. You know, it is so much easier to feed a hungry church than a church that's like, I don't even care about this joker. I don't care about this, I don't, I'm not hungry. When you come to church, like, I have expectations of God today, man, God will feed those who are hungry and thirsty. When you, when you are hungry and thirsty, what that means is you have not yet been satisfied with what you long for. And if you have not yet been filled with the Holy Spirit, or you, it's been a while, you are, are not being filled, Ephesians 5.18, then, then we are going to pray today for the thirsty to come and drink. If you don't know Jesus, but you're thirsty today, come and drink. If you know Jesus, but you are dry as a bone as a Christian, and you are not the river source that you know Jesus wants you to be, come to Jesus today and drink. If it has been a while and you know, like, like I'm just not, I'm not, I haven't come in a while, then today I invite you to Jesus to come and drink. Imagine Jesus just inviting you and say, I've got so much I want to do through your life. I've got so much I want to do in you and through you. I want you to become a source you didn't even think you could become. A source of joy, a source of abundance, a source of the Holy Spirit. And if you can honestly say, like, I just am not living in that, whether I, don't even, I haven't even come to Jesus, or, or it's been a while, or I am in a season of drought, I believe seasons of drought can end right here, right now. We don't, there, is no, there is no formula for this. Luke 11 says, you need the Holy Spirit, come ask the good Father. That's all we're saying today. You need the Holy Spirit, come ask the good Father. So I'm going to do this. I'm going to ask the, the team to come back up, and we're going to... Um, play just part of this song. And as this song is played, I just want you to engage in a time of reflection of saying, Lord, do I need to be prayed for and come to Jesus today to have my spiritual thirst satisfied so that I can become a source of living water? Not, not just wanting to assume because you've been in church for a while that you just automatically are in. Oh yeah, of course, I, be, I know the Bible. I, of course I'm a river. My life, of course, is overflowing. But if it's not, it's not. If Jesus says, you need to come, like you're one of the thirsty ones in here. I hope you're thirsty for God. And I believe that this morning as we come together for prayer, we can... Uh, really meet the Lord this morning. How many believe we can meet the Lord this morning? If we haven't already, that He still wants to meet with us. 
that we're not done with church yet because Jesus wants to meet with us. So we're going to sing part of this song. And as the song is being sung, I just want you to stand if you're saying, so everyone sit down that's not standing to say, I want the Holy Spirit, living water. But if you know you need more living water, boy, just go ahead and stand up as we sing just part of the song. And then we're just going to come around and, and pray over you in just these few moments. Nothing crazy or weird, but we're just, we're going to be praying. Holy Spirit, fill thirsty people, fill thirsty people. So as we sing, go ahead and just stand to your feet uh, as, as you feel so led. And then we're going to spend some time praying over you.